So welcome to the 24th episode of the Religion and Praxis uh, podcast. I'm your host, Tony Kimitrevelli. Today, I'm delighted to have a Professor Oliver Sharbrot from Lund University with us. Professor Sharbrot's research explores Islam in historical and contemporary settings, from modern Islam, reform to Shia Islam, Sufism, Islamic Messianism, and the experience of Muslims in Europe. His works makes a cutting-edge theories in religious studies deeply relevant to understanding of Islam today. With this in mind, we'll focus today on a controversial topic, the phenomenon of Quran burning in Sweden. While Sweden is hailed as a bastion of freedom of speech and tolerant society, it's also a multicultural melt for uh, with a substantial Muslim community, the burning of the Quran, um, Islam's holy book by the far-right activists and uh, other controversial figures raised complex ethical and legal questions. It is an act seen by many as an effort to um, religious freedom and, uh, and tolerance, fueling community tensions and threatening Sweden's international standing even. There have been protests all over different uh, parts of the world and you know, different embassies of Sweden, and also it polarized Swedish society to a large extent. So, by, but, but where does the Swedish government stand in this uh, dilemma? How does it reconcile the right to free speech with the need for religious tolerance and community cohesion? Today, we delve into these issues, um, discussing the historical context, the motivations, perhaps, of the far-right activists, and the societal implications of uh, current burnings in Sweden. And this is a general, generally very relevant question to, to, to the European context, and we'll also examine the legal conundrums and the government stance on this uh, sensitive issue. Professor Sharbrot, welcome to Religion and Praxis. Thank you very much for the invitation. So how does this incident compare to historical cases of religious texts being desecrated both within and outside of Sweden? Can you give us a broader context for, the, for our listeners? Well, I suppose <clears throat> the, the the recent incidents are quite new because they stem from a, a particular political climate that we can observe across Europe. I mean, we see the rise of uh, right-wing populism across Europe. We see this with the Sweden Democrats in Sweden as well, but we see this obviously across Europe with uh, the, the increasing electoral success of right-wing parties and, if you like, the trickle-down effect of right-wing populist discourse within public debates um, across Europe. I mean, this is not just a Swedish problem. This is something we can observe across Europe. Um, and one important element of this you know, right-wing populist phenomenon that we can observe across Europe is its anti-Islamic or Islamophobic stance. Uh, targeting in particular Muslim minorities, the Muslim presence in Europe, you know, perceiving this as a threat to the cultural identity, the historical identities of European societies. Um, so the, the recent incidents are, are very much, um, or need to be understood and need to be placed in the context of 
an increasing normalization of Islamophobia across Europe, you know, pushing, being pushed forward by right-wing political agendas. Um, and again, it's no surprise that uh, when, um, you know, the, the first who sort of began the more recent trend in, in Sweden, that was Paludan, um, you know, Swedish-Danish right-wing um, uh, politician, uh, you know, began burning the Qurans in, in, I think, in early spring 2022, just a few months before the the general elections in Sweden to gain traction, to gain attention, and so on. So I think the the more recent incident of Quran burnings in Sweden and you know similar incidents um, uh, in other European countries, you know, are need to be contextualized, you know, within the the broader anti-Islamic climate, political climate that is created through right-wing populist parties. Now, when we look at Similar instances in a in a kind of Christian context, or instances where you know Christian symbols, where the Bible is desecrated, and so on. I think the motivation is slightly different. This is more, um, you know, done by you know secular groups, atheist groups, artists uh, who who do this to. Um, Assert, ascertain themselves that you know we live in a liberal secular context. You can attack Christianity. You can attack uh, uh, you know sacred symbols of Christianity. So when when similar instances occurred within the Christian context in Europe in more recent history or in the last uh, sort of decades and so, in particular you know around artistic productions and you know art that uh, ridicules Christianity or that uses Christian symbols and subverts them, ridicules them, I think they occurred more from, I suppose, you know, kind of an atheist, secular perspective, sort of to gain a sense, okay, we live in secular Europe. Um, Christianity used to be culturally, politically influential and powerful historically, but we sort of overcome this, and therefore we can um, attack symbols of Christianity. So that's a slightly different motivation. It's more about sort of, you know, challenging the, the the kind of the Christian hegemony in European history, you know, from a kind of secular atheist perspective, whereas, you know, the, 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 the Quran burnings and the desecrations of the Quran are more driven from a yeah, sort of right-wing populist um, agenda to either, you know, gain traction for particular political actors or to create an overall political climate in these societies hostile to Islam. And how is society responding to that? What's the Swedish society's response? And both well, yeah, there are there are obviously a variety of responses. Um, um, I think, um, of course, there might be people who support this because they share the sort of uh, anti-Islamic agenda of, of parties like the Sweden Democrats. Um, but I think um, uh, for many people, it's seen yeah as a kind of embarrassment. Uh, I mean, I remember there was you know. A, somebody interviewed, you know, in the course of these burnings and what he said that, you know, this is something un-Swedish. You know, this is not something that we do in Sweden. I mean, Swedish society is a very consensual society. Um, I mean, everybody living and working in Sweden knows that as part of sort of Swedish culture, it's actually quite common to avoid conflict, you know, to offend other people, 
to deal with conflicts that might occur, like in a professional context, in a personal context, in a way to, to avoid conflict, to, to find consensus if conflict occurs. So, um, you know, I was quite intrigued when, you know, this person in a kind of uh, uh, journalistic service said, well, this is very unsweet. This is how not how we, we are not used to offending people. We're not really, that's not part of our culture, our tradition to antagonize other people, to attack other people. Um, so I think that's also kind of response that, you know, this, this kind of um, confrontational stance, deliberately offending a particular community that that's not sort of part of, 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 of Swedish culture. I think there are many people um, on the liberal and maybe left side of things a bit on the fence. Um, and I've come across this in many conversations where people would say, um, particular colleagues in academia, all right, I mean, I can see this is offensive for Muslims and it's insulting for Muslims and so on, but, you know, it's freedom of speech. You know, that's part of our society that is part of our political culture. So I think you have, you know, a range of views from being embarrassed around this, you know, seeing this sort of unnecessary, um, and also a bit unswedish to, to be uh, deliberately antagonistic. But I think there are also many um, intellectual academic people on the, the liberal left side of things who, who don't know, who don't quite know how to respond to this, to this because, their inclination is okay. It's offensive to Muslims. It's disrespectful. You know, we're attacking a minority. It's part of a of a broader um, anti-Islamic discourse that is pushed forward by right-wing activists across Europe. So they're obviously not comfortable with that. But equally, they don't want to be perceived or want to be seen as as individuals that seek to restrict freedom of expression. I think that is a dilemma that that many people sort of within the liberal mainstream of of Swedish society have at the moment. And there's, of course, a normative question. So where do we draw the line between between freedom of expression and respect for religious uh, sentiments, especially, again, going back to this uh, Quran-burning uh, incident in Sweden? So what should be the, the, the solution? I know academics, we hate to sort of go into the should questions rather than what is why and how questions, but... For the for the for the sake of our audience, um, what what how shall the you know the secular state deal uh, on the one hand with 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 this extremely existential to an extent even normative dilemma between freedom of expression and respect for religious sentiment? Yes, uh, that's obviously the big question, and I think I'll I'll give sort of two answers to this. One is what I think will most probably happen, um, and the other thing what I think should happen. Um, I think what we will most likely see is either that the the legal framework will be changed. Um, we now see this in Denmark, where there is a new law, new law going to be introduced that actually will ban the desacralization, the desecration of of sacred scriptures, whether it's the Quran, whether it's the the Bible, whether it's the Torah. Um, so that's a step that the Danish government has been taking by sort of singling this out as a criminal offense and, and criminalizing this act. And I would imagine if this sort of drags on and we have further incidents of, of Quran burnings in Sweden and it creates all these major security measures of the police being involved, uh, which, of course, are extremely, I mean, they 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 need a huge number of resources in terms of human resources, in terms of financial resources, that something similar will happen, that some sort of legal change will be introduced that will make um, this as a, as a criminal offence. 
or alternatively, existing legal frameworks will be used um, to um, justify the banning of these Quran burnings by either saying this goes against public safety and security, uh, so the police has discretionary authority to, to ban these events, and this happened a couple of times um, uh, in recent times that when you know, individuals um, submitted an application to to, um, to burn the Quran that was rejected based on, on public security and safety, so I think that will probably be, be implemented more or alternatively, um, there will be more an effort to um, to designate, to describe these Quran burnings as hate crimes, because there is hate crime legislation. If verbally I attack a particular community, a particular sexual, racial, ethnic, or religious community, and I spread hatred around this community, then I'm committing a criminal offense. So I think that's sort of what I'm expecting, that either existing legal frameworks uh, will be used um, in order to try to control and limit these burnings, or new legislation will be introduced out, out uh, lowering it, as we've seen in Denmark. So this is probably what's, what I expect. What I should happen, I think, um, in my view, this um, you know whole debate is discovered by freedom of expression. Um, you know, is this uh, acceptable? Is a bit of a distraction, and I think it's a bit of a distraction to immunize these events against criticism. I mean, I mentioned some of my liberal colleagues are they feel they're on the fence. They're not quite sure how they should position themselves because they see the offensive character and the sort of the, the anti-Muslim character, the anti-Islamic character of these events. But of course, they, they also want to defend freedom of expression. But I think this is a bit of a distraction. I think um, the real debate that, in my view, needs to happen in, in Swedish society um, and across Europe is um, around how do we engage with Muslim minorities? What kind of place do we give them in in European societies? Um, um, and to what extent is it acceptable to undertake acts that um, are offensive to them? And I think this is really beyond legislation, beyond laws or the implementation of the law. This is more about social conventions. And we have learned it in relation to other minorities in terms of how we interact with them, the language you used. For example, I mean, 50, 60 years ago, it was normal and acceptable to use the N-word when we were referring to Africans or people of African background, African heritage. Now, nobody would do it. Nobody with decency would use the N-word in public or in private because it's seen as a racial slur. Now, there is no legislation banning anyone from using this word, but we have a social consensus that it is unacceptable to use this. Or when we talk about, you know, sexual minorities, again, there were, you know, in the past, a certain language was used in reference to, 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 to members of the LGBTQ communities, you know, in reference to, um, to you know, people who are homosexual, where, you know, it was acceptable to use certain terms in relation to them to, to characterize them in, in a particular way. And again, there are not necessarily uh, laws banning the use of certain terms or certain discourses around these minorities, but we as a society have reached a consensus 
that we feel this is inappropriate, this is not acceptable. Um, again, political correctness is sometimes used, sometimes in a kind of uh, um, disparaging sense to to, um, uh, to to characterize this particular attitude that, you know, okay, we're dealing here with minorities who have been persecuted, who have been discriminated against, and we need to be particularly thoughtful in terms of how we address them, how we engage with them, and so on. And I think, you know, we need to have a similar discord around Muslim minorities that it's not really about freedom of expression. It's about what kind of attitudes, what kind of relationship is, is acceptable when we deal with Muslim minorities. Because minorities, whether they're ethnic, sexual, religious, cultural, linguistic, are always vulnerable. Majorities usually know how to take care of themselves. I mean, we have human rights not to protect majorities, it's to protect minorities. That's the, the, the idea be, behind human rights. So I think there needs to be a debate. Okay, we have a new, significant, growing Muslim minority, new religious minority in a European context in Sweden. How do we engage with this minority and things that are sensitive to them? Um, and I think that's something that moves beyond legislation and and a legal framework that um, you know relates more to social conventions, political correctness, the protection of minority rights, and 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 being becoming conscious of of um, the needs of minorities. I think the second point, um, and there we come specifically to, if you like, the religious dimension um, of this debate. I think. Um, the major problem of Swedish society, and I think of European societies more generally, that we have lost uh, to a very large extent our sensibility around religious matters. I think uh, it's sometimes a lack of what we might call what we might call religious literacy. So sometimes it's sort of unawareness and and lacking knowledge of religion. Um, but I think it's also a result that we've come to terms with the place. Of religion in European societies. Yes, we are sort of cultural, secular Christians, you know, do certain things, but religion is not something we really talk about. And of course, what we have now with a growing number of, of Muslims living in European societies, we have the question of religion and the place and role of religion in the public sphere, in public life, being put back on the agenda. You know, something which we thought we ticked it, you know, we put it in in a drawer. We solved it, and it's sort of there, but we don't really address this. And I think you know the the the, the new Islamic presence has put it back on the agenda. So again, there needs to be a broader debate about um, what is the place of religion in our societies. How do we deal with religious diversity, with religious pluralism? How do we deal with you know particular sensibilities that religious communities have that might be specific to them and might not be shared. Um, with other communities. So that needs um, religious literacy, that needs an engagement um, with religious ideas and the religious worldviews of these minorities. So I think, you know, it's a much broader debate. That's sort of really the, the point I want to make here. It's more than much more than just, you know, a question of legislation and new laws. It's about how do we engage with a growing religious minority community its particular needs, its particular sensitivities in a society that has perceived itself as being secular, something where religion doesn't play a role. And now religion becomes important again.
Uh, would you would you guide us through, uh, especially briefly? I mean, given the context, and you're talking a lot about the structural dimensions of this problem. Obviously, where many West, may, many right wing populists are kind of instrumentalizing the, the 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 idea and element of fear that somebody is coming to take over yeah. with the culture and kind of the civilizational kind of protection of the civilizationism, if you will. I mean, we've seen it in the right wing. Uh, Christian narratives and in, in Netherlands and, and and Austria as well as now we are seeing this party politics in Sweden, which are targeting particularly one religion in, in its rhetoric. I wonder how how do migration integration challenges intersect on, on both ends and both and the recipient as well as the you, you mentioned the structural part, what the state should do and how the structural problems can shift in long durée the problem of integration. I'm wondering what's the religious minority's position? How and to what extent they are being feeling uh, integrated and how they are integrated in the Swedish community? And what's the process within this the, the, in this debate of integration, migration in the context of Sweden? Um, if you guide us through briefly of the, for, for, uh, for, for a very, very... Um, um, you know, general audience that is listening to us both across the ocean and and uh, and in Europe will be great. I think the first point I'd like to make is that yes, right wing populism targets, among many other groups, um, Muslims in particular at the moment. But I think if we 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 didn't have uh, such large Muslim minorities in Europe. You know, if they were not existent or very, very small, they would target another group. I think, you know, so that's, as you said, this kind of fear of civilizational integrity, of kind of purity, um, of homogeneity. And, you know, you have a minority community that is challenging this, you know, people who are different. I think it just happened to be Muslims now because there are a growing significant minority community, the most important minority community in a contemporary European context. But if they were not here, were another group, they would target them. So that's, I think, the, the first group. So I don't think it's something specific to, to Muslims. It's it's a, a more reflection of uh, how um, in right-wing discourse that is concerned about purity, cultural purity, homogeneity, protecting us against them, the them could be anybody who is, you know, perceived at that particular moment as a particular threat to uh, sort of the, the homogeneity of the society. And in the current context in 2023, it just happens to be Muslims because of their the, the significant role they play as the largest Muslim minorities. Um, I think there are yeah different um, different issues coming here together. I mean, um, there is on the one hand. Um, of course, the need to, in very practical terms, to integrate, you know, these migrant communities in particular who have come more recently into European societies. Um, and that obviously requires educational support, that requires integration into the job market, um, that requires, um, uh, you know, their overall socioeconomic uh, integration within European societies. And there, I think, most governments have failed. I mean, they have either had sort of a very naive understanding, sort of, uh, yeah, they can keep their culture and we support them and we'll all get along in one way or the other. So I think, you know, there is a certain 
political naivety around multiculturalism as such. Uh, I think multiculturalism is a reality of European society. So in a kind of descriptive sense, you know, we have to accept that we live in in societies that are religiously, ethnically, and culturally plural. But, you know, the kind of normative sense of multiculturalism, I agree, that's a bit naive to sort of assume everybody can keep their culture and, you know, we support this and we sort of will manage to get along. So I think that's a problem. And I think there was also another problem that sort of the notion, okay, we've sort of accepted these people in our countries. They will see how liberal and progressive we are and we've been so generous in giving asylum and refuge to them. Surely they will embrace these values as well. And we become liberal and progressive as well. Um, and of course, this is not necessarily happening. Yes, of course, you know, many of these migrants communities embrace these values, but you know, many of them have, you know, socially conservative values and so on. So I think in terms of the expectations of, of European host societies or governments, there has been um, yeah, a little bit of naivety on political and intellectual grounds that it will be kind of a smooth ground because it requires active effort of the host societies to integrate them, to avoid the segregation. Um, and of course, if um, you know these opportunity structures are provided, then um, it will be easier for these minority communities to, to integrate. I mean, I think um, after when the Quran burnings began in Sweden, uh, in 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 spring 2022, and then after the more recent incident in in Malmo in in, in southern Sweden, uh, and you know the violence between uh, certain groups and the police, um, I think there are you know I mean this is not primarily a kind of a sign of you know the 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 the, the offense uh, certain communities feel um, about these actions or their frustration. I think it's uh, you know an underlying frustration about their 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 lacking place in in Swedish society in European societies i mean they've been segregated they've been put in particular neighborhoods with you know poorer educational facilities poorer healthcare um very little um chances to to progress economically and that leads to sort of yeah, segregation ghettoization to the rise of criminality the rise of criminal gangs and so on so yeah it requires you know efforts on both sides to to sort of integrate them and i think you know the kind of socioeconomic integration plays here an important role and an understanding that both minority communities and the whole societies need to play uh, an active role. At the same time, beyond this socioeconomic integration, um, you know, there needs to be also a sense that um, you know Muslims and their particular worldviews, beliefs, and values have a place in Swedish society or in European societies uh, more generally, um, uh, even if they challenge certain secular uh, assumptions that we've made about European societies, even if they potentially challenge um, liberal mainstream views around certain issues. So um, so integration means here on the one hand sort of providing pathways for a kind of socioeconomic integration uh, through education and the professional field within host societies, but also again changing the discursive parameters where you know, people who 
have, you know, who challenge the kind of secular liberal mainstream are not automatically sort of marginalized or per- perceived as, as not being part of European societies. Yeah, and of course, um, for, for, for our listeners, the book that challenges the conventional wisdom that positions secularism as neutral or universal, instead revealing how it can be deeply intertwined with cultural and political and even religious assumptions is is critique secular, blabsome injury and free speech by Talal Assad, Wendy Brown, Judith Butler, and uh, Sabah Mahmoud. Great read, in case you're interested. And that brings me to the next question, actually, on how has the concept of blabsome evolved within Islamic jurisprudence from the time of Prophet Muhammad to present day? I know that's a $1 million question for a five to 10 minute answer, but Islam is, is, is diverse with various sects yeah. and thoughts. And are there differences in how blabsome is perceived and blasphemy is perceived and dealt with across these um, different traditions? Would you guide us through that or what's your take on that? Yes, absolutely. It's it's a very diverse tradition and not surprisingly, there are diversity of views around this issue at the same time, because we're talking here about a world religion uh, of, you know, almost 1500 years of, of history. Uh, you know, one point, I think, three billion followers. Obviously, there's a range of views among Muslims and, of course, within sort of scholarly traditions that have um, dealt with this issue. Now, the first problem that we encounter is that there is not really in Islamic thought, if you like, in Islamic law um, that would primarily deal with these issues or in Islamic theology, a real equivalent to blasphemy. Um the, the major concern for Muslim theologians and then for Islamic lawyers, jurisprudence, you know, legal scholars, was the question of when does a Muslim become an apostate? So when do his actions, her actions, uh, his or her words signify that there are not really on the ground of orthodox Islam? Uh, so when they you know what? Yeah, what makes a Muslim an apostate, and 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 what are the criteria? So that's the first thing we need to be aware of: that there is not really an Islamic discourse on blasphemy as such, but it's about apostasy and the the conditions of apostasy. Um, so what you know, what does a Muslim need to say in order to stop being Muslim about God, about the Prophet, about the Quran, and and so on? So the the discourse is very much focused around if you like, the expectations of a Muslim and his or her actions and words and views and how they're articulated. Um, and again, it's not really about blasphemy. It's about when does it become yeah, unorthodox, when it become becomes apostasy by saying, you know, I don't believe in God um, or, you know, Muhammad is an imposter, the Quran is not the word of God, it's not a divine revelation, and all these sort of things. We'll say, okay, you have different schools of thought, but these are things where different uh, Muslim schools of thought address. So that's the first we need to be aware of how it is framed. It's about the question of, of apostasy, and it's primarily directing Muslims. And, you know, you have different views. Some would say, okay, saying certain things doesn't necessarily constitute apostasy, it needs to be uh, turned into actually political actions to undermine an Islamic state. Only then do we need to intervene. But if people just utter random opinions about God, about the Prophet, um, so that's sort of one debate. To what extent do you need to intervene as an Islamic authority if you come across views that are seen as uh, heterodox, as heretical, with as, as possibly constituting apostasy? 
Um, so there's a difference um, uh, between different legal schools, different legal scholars. Um, then there's a difference on the punishment. So some say, okay, the person needs to be put to death. Uh, others say, no, we need to give the chance of the person to be repent or we imprison them. There's a difference of opinion if the perpetrator is a male or female, so other different punishments, and then so on. And of course, these debates are not, you know, specific to Islam. I mean, we have uh, in Christianity and in pre-modern Christian Europe. I mean, we had the Inquisition, which was all there to ensure that Christians uh, conform to particular notions of orthodoxy, and you know, Christians who are seen as heretical, would equally killed. Uh, and we had, you know, witches that were burned. So I think, you know, these debates around how to deal with somebody who is a heretic, who is an apostate, and, you know, the punishment and how, if you like, religious authorities have to intervene and how the state needs to support them, that's obviously a discourse that um, is not unique to Islam. That is, you know, we find something similar in Christianity. Um Another important um, course uh, element or um, issue where there are different opinions is the question of to what extent um, does do these rulings affect non-Muslims? Because again, the way how this is framed in Islamic law is about when does a Muslim become a heretic, an apostate, and what is should be the punishment or what should be the sanctions that, you know, society or Islamic authorities or the state needs to impose. So the question is, you know, how do these rules apply to non-Muslims? Because obviously there are not Muslims, they can't become upper states, and they would have beliefs that anyway would be heretical from uh, an Islamic point of view. So Christians who lived under Muslim rule, and their religion was sort of tolerated. They lived as minorities. Of course, they believed in the Trinity, which from an Islamic theological perspective is heretical. They believed that Jesus, the Son of God, which again, from an Islamic theological perspective, is heretical. They don't believe in the prophecy of Muhammad. Um, they think he's an impostor, he's not a prophet. So already as part of the religious worldviews, they would hold views that are seen from an Islamic perspective heretical. And with few exceptions, religious authorities, state authorities didn't intervene. Um, as long, of course, if you know these uh, views were not present in the public. So again, there is a debate on, okay, if a non-Muslim uh, in a Muslim context attacks God, attacks the Quran, attacks the Prophet, to what extent are the punishments or the sanctions that would apply to a Muslim are they applicable to a non-Muslim? And again, you have different opinions. Some would say they can do whatever they want because they're non-Muslims anyway. And of others say, okay, you know, they might not share these beliefs, but you know, we live in an Islamic order. This is an Islamic society, so we have a responsibility. If, if people um, attack the fund foundations of Islam, um, even if they're not Muslims, you know, we need to intervene and so on. And of course, these are all debates very much in the pre-modern Muslim context. So I'm talking here really about, if you like, debates among Islamic scholars in the in the in the pre-modern period. Now, the modern period has changed uh, many things. And of course, you have, again, a variety of approaches in schools uh, around this. I mean, you have people who maintain more traditional understandings, but of course, you also have, if you like, liberal, reformist Muslim thinkers who would say, okay, you know, these rules emerged um, in the context, in the pre-modern context, uh, um, in a particular situation, and they're not really applicable um, in the modern world. <coughs> 
and therefore uh, we need to revise these traditional rulings and you know give freedom of speech and so on uh, i mean when we look in in the contemporary context uh uh, you know, the major targets of, you know, these sort of charges of heresy, of blasphemy, of um, apostasy in Muslim-majority context are usually Muslim academics and intellectuals themselves who, you know, argue for, you know, a reinterpretation of Islam, a different understanding of the Quran. Um, so, and of course, we might say this is part of a, of of of, of, a, of a larger process to um, limit, you know, kind of liberal thinking, progressive thinking in certain parts of the Muslim world, where religious authority cooperate with autocratic rulers, dictatorships, to um, limit the scope of freedom of speech. So, so yeah, we can certainly see a diversity of views around this, you know, around what constitutes blasphemy, what constitutes apostasy, to the extent whether these rules that apply to Muslims apply to to non-Muslims, there's a diversity of views. And there has been, you know, have been intense debates within modern Islam between, if you like, more conservative, traditional um, thinkers and more progressive liberal thinkers around, you know, the, the suitability of these ideas in the modern context. Yeah, and and, and, and great uh, um... Um, explanation for for, for very um, complex question. Thanks very much for that. I mean, I mean, obviously there are a number of questions, but we are running out of time. So a few more questions. Um, given the current global political climate and increasing polarization, what are the potential implications of incidents uh, as we discussed, like Quran burning in Sweden, and how can societies navigate these challenges in the future beyond Sweden and in general? What, what we, we've spoken a lot about this normative uh, frameworks and perhaps. The Danish example, where we, we we see that governments are ready to challenge um, um, legally, um, but also as you discussed, there's some social um, and, and 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 political, social slash cultural elements to that. That on the level of society, which are imperative, um, and 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 these are extremely important uh, questions. I'm wondering what's the sort of uh, potential implications in in outside of Sweden. Uh, for this Quran burnings, do you see any chain reactions? Um, do you see any, uh, you know, within within Germany, for example, or other countries in in Europe with a significant uh, Muslim minority population? What kind of responses uh, on both political and and then recipient end do those actions and incidents generate? And what should we expect in the future? If you can predict, uh, of course, the, with a with a with a very careful usage of the word predict here. Well, I think. Um... Uh, I mean, in, in I think what has happened, obviously, it has sort of created an awareness around these issues, and uh, and certainly, um, you know, you know, sort of creating an environment has created you know other contexts and environment where people are discouraged to do that if you know existing legal frameworks um, would not prescribe um, prescribe such um, activities at the moment. So I think. Uh, um, I mean, I suppose there is a certain uh, effort made to sort of present this as a particular sort of Swedish problem or specific Swedish power issue because of its very broad definition of freedom of religion and to sort of say, look, it's, it's not happening in our societies. You know, we 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 have a better sort of understanding of the sensibilities of Muslim minorities or we have existing frameworks um, uh, that sort of prevent these sort of activities. Um, 
I mean, I think, as I said, I mean, what we need is a more robust debate around how we deal with religious and cultural and ethnic diversity in our societies, how we um, relate to Islam, you know, how we you know, create um, an understanding of Islam that doesn't other Muslims, that sort of integrates them, uh, that, you know, makes sure that they feel, um, you know, part of, of European societies. Um, I think just the challenge is that um, at the moment, you know, the, the overall political climate is not very conducive for such an open de debate because, we see the rise of right-wing populism across Europe, um, you know, political parties that are part of this particular uh, political spectrum uh, becoming more powerful, becoming parts of, part of governments and so on. So I think that will be the challenge for academics, intellectuals, for, you know, leaders of different faith communities, you know, Christian uh, or majority communities or minority communities, how to instill, if you like, a an ethos of, of mutual understanding, of understanding of religious sensibilities, of um, respect for religion, um, you know, how representatives of, of uh, communities that have this sincere um, goal of, of increasing understanding uh, in a political climate that becomes increasingly hostile uh, to such sentiments. I think that will be, I think, the major political challenge of, of European societies in the coming decades. Thank you very much, Professor Charbrot. Thanks our listeners for joining us in this extremely enlightening journey. And we look forward to bringing you more engaging conversations with leading experts in future episodes of Religion in Praxis. Until then, take care and stay curious. <laughs>